Coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast, Ozzy knows her stuff when it comes to sarcoidosis. So we know that in patients who have um, sarcoidosis, you know, 60% of patients will go ahead and resolve the disease without any need of, you know, intervention. But another 40% will progress to um, loss of lung function. A researcher at Vanderbilt University, she wanted to know why women seem to suffer more. You know, the sex hormones actually do drive um, lung fibrosis. Coming up, an interview with Oziyama Chioma and a look at her cutting-edge research on sarcoidosis. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Well, hello and welcome. This is episode 21 of the Sark Fire podcast, brought to you in part by a grant from Atire Pharma. I'm your host, John Carlin. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter, and you can hear his story about how Sark took him off the ice as a hockey player and he details his story in episode 12, and he's had the full gamut of sarcoidosis-related issues from the medication to the disease itself to finding doctors, and that's all there in episode 12. And then proceeds from his song will be donated to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, and I've got links to all of that in the show notes. Of course, I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I'm fighting Sark. I happen to have NeuroSark, but if you're listening, chances are you are as well, whether you're a caregiver, a patient, or a researcher. And I started the podcast in early 2020, before COVID ever hit, thinking this would be a good place for all of us to gather and to listen to other people's stories, to share our stories, and to hear the latest research and maybe, maybe, just maybe, give everybody a little bit of hope in fighting this disease. And I think that uh, at some, in some ways, if, if what I'm hearing from all of you is true, that's happening. And that is the reason we are doing this podcast. Normally, I release on every other Monday morning. And for those of you who may be driving to work and you've got an early drive time, I try to have it up and ready so that it's there in your inbox so you, so you can listen on your way to work. That's I find that I listen to podcasts when I'm working out and when I'm in the car. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do, but it, after it's posted, it's always there. So uh, just so you know, that is that is the goal. And for the most part, we've uh, I've been able to do that. Okay, so um, if you want to do something to help in the fight against sarcoidosis, please consider donating your birthday to FSR on Facebook. It could not be easier. Uh, And Facebook doesn't even take a cut. It's become an amazing source of revenue for FSR. And I just celebrated my birthday on October 30th. I asked people to donate, and I guess Facebook leaves it up for about two weeks 
And at, much to my surprise, without doing much legwork at all, I've already raised over $700. So that really does work. And I would encourage you to do so. Um, also, if you're new to the disease, you're trying to figure out what is sarcoidosis, what do you have, what's going on with you, what's going on in your body. Um, of course, welcome to our community. We're sorry that you have to be here, but we'll do all we can to help. And so you might want to consider my interview with Dr. Simon Hart. That was episode two, and Dr. Hart kind of went over the ABCs of sarcoidosis. And even if you've been around the disease for a while, you probably will learn something new in terms of how it manifests itself in our bodies and so forth. So that was, that was back in episode two. And if you want to know more about me and my background and, and my sad story and how I got here, uh, I, I detailed all of that in episode one. Uh, I did that in part because I needed some content to get the podcast going. I didn't, at that point, didn't have anybody else to talk to. But I also, I felt like I couldn't ask other people to share their stories publicly if I wasn't willing to do that as well. So that's episode one. Uh, and by the way, I, get, I just have to tell you that it has helped me a lot talking with other people, uh, hearing about their struggles, understanding how uh, what you guys are going through is so similar to what I'm going through. And, and I've heard from uh, numerous listeners now that um, that, that is also true for them. So uh, we call this an audio support group. Now, you may or may not know that the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research not only helps researchers work on solutions for SARC, but they specialize in patient outreach. They help us cope with SARC, uh, the medications, the search for doctors, all the changes in our lives, dealing with family members. And one of the fundraisers this year was a, a KISS 5K. Usually that's an event where people gather and run a 5K in the streets all together. But of course, that's virtual this year. Thank you, COVID. Uh, KISS stands for Kick In to Stop Sarcoidosis. And I used to be a runner, but because of SARC, my legs just don't function the way I need them to, to, to run happily and successfully. But my wife and her running group all got together on the morning of October 30th, and they did a 5K. And my wife brought everybody coffee and homemade muffins. And then they used the app, which comes from the website, the FSR website. It tracked their course. And when they got to 3.1 miles, which is a 5K, it gave them their times. And it registered them as having completed it. And it all worked out great. It was very easy to do. So... I want to thank them for, for running on my behalf and raising uh, uh, some money for FSR. Now, the other thing that's going on is the second summit is coming up in November, and I will be moderating one of the patient discussions. Uh, we just had a virtual meeting, in fact, uh, yesterday morning to uh, 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning. That's how dedicated we are, all right? Uh, virtual meeting till we could all get to know one another and... I learned a little bit more about the other people who will be sharing their stories so that I can ask them good questions as well. Um, but I want to go over the Saturday, November 14th, 2020 Summit. Uh, if you just go to the FSR website, you will find there that there is a place to buy a ticket for $40. And if, uh, if you can't afford the $40, just contact FSR. Uh, contact Mindy Buchanan with FSR, and uh, she she will waive that fee if if you have 
if you don't have the ability to pay it. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's where you go and you sign in. But here is the rundown. So uh, right from the top, FSR's Virtual Patient Education Summit will provide presentations from expert physicians and researchers, as well as lectures and exercises in lifestyle, emotional well-being, legal and financial matters, and FSR resources. Attendees will be able to choose which presentations to attend based upon which are the most relevant to their lives. And there will be a self-care station and ample opportunities for attendees to relax, recharge the batteries between sessions, and to meet one another virtually online. So let me just go over this on, uh, this is November the 14th, starting at 8 a.m. FSR founders Andrea and Redding Wilson will greet everybody, and they've been on the podcast. Wonderful, wonderful people. Then from 8 to 8.50, the Sarcoidosis Warrior Roundtable, that's the one that I'll be moderating, and my guests will be Jessica Reed, Jim Kuhn, and Sabrina Sonier. And uh, I'm not going to tell you too much about their stories right now, but there will be both advice and, and sharing of stories from all of those folks. And I'm very excited to, uh, to be a part of that and to have been asked by FSR to be the moderator for that discussion. Uh, from 9 to 9.50, a research wheel, how you can move research forward. Uh, and uh, in Auditorium B, Overwhelmed, How to Cope with the Emotional Fallout of Sarcoidosis. Uh, from 10 to 10.50 in Auditorium A, the COVID-19 survey results an update with Dr. Robert Boffman, uh, who is kind of the, probably if there was one person that people speak of as being the number one guy, MD, related to sarcoidosis, his name is the one that comes up the most often. And he, he's been doing this research on COVID-19 and if we as SARC patients are at any more risk than the general population, and that will be from 10 to 10.50. There is a break between 11 and 11.30, but uh, you can at that point meet uh, our Chief Executive Officer, Mary McGowan. So she is our new leader at FSR. I had the chance to uh, have a conversation with her off the air. Um, just earlier this week, wonderful person. She has some great ideas for fundraising and taking the organization to the next level. And she is our first ever chief executive officer. Uh, before we've had executive directors, but uh, when you're the CEO, you have uh, you have a little more sway. Uh, so anyway, she is the person, uh, and and so you can meet her between eleven and eleven thirty. Uh, and also, I will let you know that she will be appearing very soon in an episode of the Sark Fighter podcast, and we'll hear a lot more from Mary then. Uh, so I'll, let me just go down the rest of this, and, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but navigating insurance, uh, complementary and alternative medicine therapies for Sark symptoms, cardiac sarcoidosis, focus on chronic disease from the University of Ottawa Heart Institute, uh, there's a break from 12.20 to 1, but there will be a lot of uh, Sark Warriors hanging out in the lounge. Uh, from 1 to 1.50, you don't look sick. How to manage relationships with family and friends. Man, that's what I've heard over and over and over. Uh, you know, you look fine. You know, here, go, go do everything that you look like you're able to do. And sometimes it's just not possible. 
pulmonary sarcoidosis, uh, sarcoidosis 101, understanding how to care for your emotional health. Uh, let's see, uh, there's a break and then a lot of Sark Warriors in the lounge. And in fact, uh, let's see, I will be in the lounge. Oh, before I get to that, neurosarcoidosis, focus on chronic disease from 4 to 450 with Barney Stern at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I am pretty sure that I will be in that session listening since that's the, the SARC that, uh, that impacts my life. Uh, there'll be a closing uh, from uh, 5 to 5.15, and then there's an exhibit hall where stuff's going on all day, uh, including mindfulness and meditation, uh, uh, more opportunities to meet Mary McGowan. Uh, I will be in the lounge from 3.30 to 4, where you can uh, meet me and talk to me and talk about the Sark Fighter podcast or you know whatever, whatever it is you want to talk about. I will be there, and I'm looking forward to it. So anyway, I probably have gone on quite a lot about this, but I, I think this is so important in terms of the outreach that FSR does and the people who attend these sessions. There was another one back in September that I had too many conflicts. I just wasn't able to get to it. But uh, people who went to it really said that they enjoyed it. So uh, that's what's going on, and that's coming up on November 14th. All right, meanwhile today, my guest is Oziyama Chioma, PhD, researcher extraordinaire. She may well be the smartest person in the room, no matter what room she is in. But we had a great conversation. She breaks it all down, so it's very understandable. And, and she uh, is just doing some wonderful research. She also talks a little bit about uh, what, uh, what happens in your gut that may be leading to sarcoidosis. And she is a, a PhD and now a postdoctoral fellow at Vanderbilt University. And my interview with Ozzy, as she likes to be called, is coming up next. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling. The Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is the nation's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to finding the cure for this disease and to improving care for sarcoidosis patients worldwide. Since its establishment in 2000, FSR has fostered over $5 million in sarcoidosis-specific research efforts and has provided disease education and support for thousands of individuals navigating life with sarcoidosis. Learn more about FSR and how they're supporting those impacted by this disease at www.stopsarcoidosis.org. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast, and joining me now is a researcher, uh, a PhD, a rocket scientist in the in the field, if you will. Uh, Oziyama Chioma from Vanderbilt University, a postdoctoral fellow who is working on sarcoidosis. And uh, Ozzy, thank you for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, John. So you are looking at uh, a bunch of different things that have to do with sarcoidosis, but your most recent research has looked at the basic question of why do women have a worse time with sarcoidosis 
than men. Is it, have I phrased that correctly? Yes, you have. That's exactly what we're looking at. So um, I'm fortunate enough to work um, at a research institute where uh, I have a, a dedicated PI who is really, really into sarcoid research. I mean, she before I moved into the field, I had no idea what sarcoidosis was. And I applied for the job and then she explained it to me and I got really excited. And so when I joined her laboratory, um, Dr. Wanda Drake, she told me about this really cool project that she had um, looking at uh, sex disparities in sarcoidosis, so health disparities. And you know, from the research, we know that more women actually um, suffer from sarcoidosis, especially African-American women. And so we really wanted to understand why this disease was affecting women. And so that's what we've been looking at for the past uh, four years now. Uh-huh. And have you been able to come up with a theory or a suggestion or, you know, where, where has that research led? So the interesting thing is, so we were able to get funding from uh, the Foundation of Sarcoidosis Research. I'm sure you know that foundation. And with that funding, you know, we're able to look using mirror models and, of course, uh, uh, samples from our sarcoid patients. And we're, we're, you know, our research is really focused on looking at the sex hormones and the effect of the hormones, you know, in driving um, interstitial lung disease, so lung fibrosis. So we know that in patients who have um, sarcoidosis, you know, 60% of the patients will go ahead and resolve the disease without any need of, you know, intervention. But another 40% will progress to um, loss of lung function and probably end up with lung fibrosis. And so we were really interested in looking at the role of these sex hormones in driving lung fibrosis. And that's what our, you know, our research has really focused on. So right now we've um, gone ahead and concluded, of course, we found that you know, the sex hormones actually do drive um, lung fibrosis. Uh, we've concluded our studies and then we submitted our manuscripts for, for review. But you know how the scientific process is, is that there's still the um, business of science. So um, even though we submitted our, 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 our manuscript, um, as long as we haven't gotten that um, acceptance yet, you know, so <laughs> as long as you haven't gotten an acceptance yet, you know, you, that, that information is still um, the property of the university. And so um, we'd be happy to share the results of that as soon as that manuscript gets accepted. So, but you, I, uh, you said a lot right there, but I want to back up because of course, you're still going through the scientific review, and this yeah. will not be heralded as this great sensational find until that process continues. Right. But you and your group discovered mm -hmm. that hormones do, in fact, drive the progression of sarcoidosis. Did I understand you to say that correctly? Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah. that's huge. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Um, that is huge. So, well, well, I mean, so, so tell us. Uh, without getting too much into T-cells and all this other stuff that's <laughs> above the, the pay grade of most of the people listening to this, driving their cars to work on a given morning, wh right. what did you find is the connection between hormones and the progression of, of the sarcoids? Well, you know, the major difference between men and women is the, the, the sex hormones, basically, and estrogen and progesterone. And we really used our um, mouse model. So we have a, a model of lung fibrosis that we use. One of the limitations of studying sarcoidosis is that we don't have a dedicated uh, animal model for sarcoidosis because, um, because the etiology of the disease is still unknown. We don't know what the cause is. So we can only really 
use animal models for specific aspects of the disease. So in this case, we use an animal model of lung fibrosis. And using that model, we're able to, um, basically what you're doing is addition and subtraction, basically. You use a model, you take out the ovaries, you look at the effect on, on, on fibrosis, then you put back these hormones one after the other. And using that method, we're able to show that indeed, these sex hormones actually do drive um, lung fibrosis. And we're able to relate that to uh, sarcoid patients, you know, so we have um, uh, patients who were looking at levels of their estrogen and progesterone as well. And we can also see the relationship between the patients who do better and the patients who have long, worse lung function. So, so we're finding that that's, we think that that's actually a thing and, and, and that's going to be important moving forward in just the way that sarcoid is regarded and treated um, if, we, if we understand what the role of these hormones are in driving the disease. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. You've got your model in mice. You, uh, you have hypothesized or theorized or whatever level you're at scientifically that uh, one of these hormones is driving the progression of sarcoidosis. Right. It, it, is it a big leap then to say that uh, we could come forward after human trials with some sort of a hormone therapy and and cure the fibrosis? Yes, so that's ultimately uh, what we, we hope will happen is that in people who have worse forms of the disease, let's say people who have end-stage sarcoid where they're having trouble breathing, they, you know, lung fibrosis, um, that they have more options, therapeutic options with what can be done. So basically, um, if it's that we find that a specific hormone is in fact inducing lung fibrosis, you know, we consider, but it's just, it's a big leap right now because of course we're so, so many degrees away from clinical trials and things like that. But, you know, the key is finding something that a specific target that you can, um, look at and probably inhibit that would reduce uh, patient suffering or even improve the, the quality of life of our patients. So that's something that ultimately, of course, we would love to see happen. We're speaking with uh, Ozi Chioma, a postdoctoral fellow at Vanderbilt University who's doing some research uh, funded by the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. And she is uh, finding that there is a hormone component, at least in women, that's driving this. So when you look at all of this, I want to back up and just ask you a very broad brush question that everybody with sarcoidosis asks, which is, are we any closer to finding out the cause of sarcoidosis? Uh, yes. I would say every day brings us closer to a cure. Every day brings us closer to discovering the the why. Um, having worked with this disease for four years, I, I see a lot, there, there are different groups that study different things. So there's a group that studies the genetic component, you know, looking at people in the same family who even have this disease and trying to figure out if there is a genetic link to sarcoidosis. There are people who believe there's a microbial component to it where they believe that um, certain microbes, you know, like microbacteria, and of course, uh, another one, uh, P. acnes, actually involved in sarcoidosis. The people that believe that, and then there's evidence from the, the World Trade Center with the firefighters um, that showed that there was an increase in sarcoidosis after the World Trade Center. So people believe that that, that dust, you know, that uh, all the inorganic particles, these are things that could cause sarcoidosis. So there's different schools of thought. So what I believe 
after working with soccer for for four years and i of course i'm you know I may be right, I may be wrong, but what I do believe is actually that there are people who are genetically predisposed to this disease. And so when these people are confronted with these different factors, now it could be the inorganic, it could be genetic, it could be a combination of all of these, under the right settings, I believe that these are the people who end up with sarcoidosis. And um, just what, where we're at right now is just trying to figure out, okay, so people have sarcoid, how do we help our patients? And so that's really where we are. But I think every day with funding, this disease is actually considered a rare disease. So of course, you know that funding for rare diseases is not the best. So um, I believe that if we have more funding, if we can actually bring more researchers into the field, because I think there's, there's a gap right now where there's not a lot of people studying sarcoidosis. And thanks to um, the Foundation of Sarcoidosis Research, you know, they're bringing in more people, making these opportunities available. Um, like I told you before I started this um, field, I had no idea what sarcoidosis was. I read it and I was like, this sounds interesting. Like, what is this? So, um, and I got interested because, you know, I'd already decided from undergrad that I really wanted to go into medical research. And so finding out that I could actually make a difference in this field, um, I, found, I found that really inspiring. And so I think if we had more funding, definitely you would have uh, more of the resources um, to push the field forward. So, yeah. But we are, we are getting closer to a cure, but I, I, it's not like, it, the funding for sarcoid is not like the funding for, let's say, cancer research right now. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's one of the reasons we do the podcast here is to just try and raise awareness and get yeah. people out there talking and, and tell uh, people's stories and talk to researchers. And uh, so that's, that's why we are here today. And we've, uh, we've talked to any number of people here on the podcast who've uh, told their, their stories of how one day they're fine. You know, the Mark Landiak in, in the previous episodes, hiking in the Grand Canyon with his daughter, and all of a sudden he can't breathe and it turns out he's got cardiac sarcoidosis perfectly healthy guy, you know, uh, and, and I, I, off the top of my head, I don't, I don't want to get into listing all the people that have come on and told their story, but it is so frustrating. It was frustrating for me. Uh, I've got it on my spinal cord right back here behind my neck. And, you know, I'm, I was a marathon runner, you know, happy, healthy, you know, ate well, and then, and then boom. And, and so I, it's just so frustrating. So to hear that, you are, you know, making progress uh, on, uh, you know, the causes. And then, you know, once we know the cause, then I guess that that's the first step in figuring out the cure, isn't it? Right, right. That really is. And I'm actually thankful for this um, podcast because being on the research side of things, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a, you know, I have a PhD, but I really work in a lab. I don't really have access to patients as such. So I don't really in interact with patients. I don't really know sarcoidosis patients. I just know that my, my PI is, you know, she's an MD and she's really works in this field. She's actually the director for the sarcoidosis center at Vanderbilt. So um, she does, she sees the patients. So we, there's, there's that, um, I would say a barrier between the researchers and actually talking to actual sarcoidosis patients. So you know, I find it even more inspiring when I talk to people who actually have the disease because then it, you know, it, it, it tells us that, okay, you're, you're spending all these hours at, in the lab looking at this thing, but they're actually people who are, who are living that 
daily, you know? So it gives us a better, it motivates us to do even do more. So I think bringing down that barrier between the researchers and the patients is actually really important because um, research isn't the easiest thing ever, you know, because, you know, you do a lot of things, you have all these ideas, they probably don't work out. You feel, you feel um, disappointed most times. But when you actually have these interactions with the patients, it tells you the why, like, this is why we're doing it. And so that I find this really, really helpful in just talking to you. And um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that our findings will, um, will prefer solutions that will, you know, be beneficial to you as well. Now, I know that, that your primary research is not related to the, the biome, which is the, uh, all the bacteria in your gut. But right. you, did, you did tell me last week you were doing some sort of a biome boot camp. Right. <laughs> what, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit? So that's just a fancy name for um, spending all day on the computer, trying to figure out um, computer programs for decoding um, the different microorganisms that are in the gut. So really, um, I've just submitted a grant to the NIH uh, to look at the role of the gut microbiome on, you know, the sarcoidosis disease progression. Because we believe that, basically, you've probably heard this before, that you're what you eat, right? And in several disease models, in obesity, in diabetes, they found that there's a difference between people who have these diseases and people who don't. And one of the major differences is the gut, looking at the gut microbiome. And so I'm really interested in not just looking now, because you know, my first research was looking at females and looking at African-American females and just trying to figure out why women in general have more sarcoidosis. But now I want to move forward and look at something that would benefit everyone across board, just looking at the gut microbiome. What is the relationship between people who, uh, we call them progressors, or people who um, move on to have worse forms of the disease, people who resolve the disease, trying to understand what the difference is in the microbiome, you know, what the differences are. And I feel like that will give us a really good clue to what is really driving the disease. So say, for instance, we find that the people in the, in, who, who do better have a different signature, microbial signature, than the people who don't, um, then we have a lead. We, we can say, hey, you know, we can begin to talk about, um, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say fecal, I don't know if fecal microbial transplant, but, you know, microbial transplants that would help uh, patients who, who actually do worse with the disease. So I, I think it's worth looking into. I think it's, um, it's an area that needs to be explored. The gut microbiome is it's really important in a lot of diseases. And we just have preliminary data that actually shows that the gut microbiome actually affects people, you know, affects uh, development of fibrosis, lung fibrosis as well. And so I think that's really important. And I really hope that grant gets funded um, so that we have the opportunity to look at that um, in the next couple of years, yeah. Yeah, every time I talk to somebody, um, who says, oh yeah, I had XYZ issue, maybe it was sarcoidosis, maybe it was something else, and they found out it was, it was something in my gut. And I just sense that that's going to be the next major area of breakthrough in medical science, whether, whether it's diabetes, whether it's sarcoidosis, whatever. I just, it, for whatever reason, just makes sense to me intuitively, and I'm not a doctor, I, you know, I don't have any medical training, I took biology in high school and that's it. 
you know, but um, because I've been around sarcoidosis, I've been, you know, reading probably more than my, my share and talking to more different people. Uh, but that just, it just, there's something about the, the, the logic of it that makes sense to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where the, the, the future is. I mean, of course, if you talk to different researchers, everyone is passionate about something else. Um, but this is really what I'm passionate about. And I believe that um, if this grant is funded, um, that it has the potential to do a lot of good um, just across board for um, software patients. And we can even learn things, not just for software patients, but uh, patients in general who have interstitial lung disease. So we're talking IPF, we're talking, um, uh, uh, you know, things like that. So it's not just going to be limited to software, it's just going to be something that can be applicable to even other diseases as well. Now, you mentioned that when you were going through with your mouse model, and what you do is you add a hormone and see what happens, and add another hormone and see what happens, add another hormone. Is there a name for a particular hormone that you were able to isolate? Oh, we looked at estrogen. We looked at progesterone. Um, these are the two uh, major uh, uh, female sex hormones um, that we were able to look at. We looked at a combination of both. We looked uh -huh. at you know uh, uh, models where you don't have any hormones at all, and we compared these groups. And so we were able to see what the differences were. And we used um, lung fibrosis as an indicator of um, whether the, the, the mice were getting lung fibrosis or not. And so, yeah, that's, that's really what we did. And the more estrogen you added, the more fibrosis you saw? Uh, Not that well, simple, is it? <laughs> we, well, yeah, we found that a combination of these um, sex hormones actually increased the, uh, was driving the disease. So um, estrogen by itself, progesterone by itself, but when in combination, um, these two actually drive the disease. Mm hmm And, but that could be regulated at some point, you think? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That could Very be. easily. Like just, just uh, like the hormone pills that women take now. Um, yeah. I think of women who are menopausal, um, right. who are, uh, yeah, who have gone into menopause. Um, the, 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 these hormones go dip, you know, they, they go down. And so that's just something to think about for the future is if this is actually in patients with sarcoidosis, if this is driving the disease, um, what can we do? What can we do for people who have lung fibrosis? What can we do for them? And so we want them to have multiple options um, where they can uh, choose. I mean, it's a, it's a big leap right now, but it's just something that we hope um, would help at this point. Yeah. So when will the scientific review be done of your research? Oh, so um, so the way it works is that you turn in your research to a journal, and then they send it out for review. It takes months sometimes. Um, so we've turned it in. We're just hoping for feedback from the scientific community um, before anything is regarded as law in this field. Um, you have to have expert reviewers take a look and make sure everything is done well. And then you know sometimes they come back and ask you to do a little bit more. Um, sometimes they ask you to uh, explain certain things. And so that takes a while, um, but we're just waiting for the reviewers to give us their feedback right now. And so we can know um, if this is ready for publication. So maybe a year? Uh, I, I hope not. I hope not. I hope that takes a couple months. A couple months. So let's say this gets published uh, sometime in 2021. And okay. so, so what has to happen after that for this to be something that helps 
the first patient? So yeah, clinical trials. So if you're listening to the the, the COVID, um, uh, the way the COVID uh, story has been going, you know, you probably hear a lot of clinical trials being thrown out there. Um, but really what happens is there are different stages in clinical trials. There are stages where you do the animal studies, there are stages where you take it to the patient, you want to make sure it's safe, and then you take it to the patients, and then if that works, eventually, you know, it's put out as a therapeutic. This is a long process. I understand that with COVID, that has been expedited, like, because they really want that vaccine to get out there. But really what this is, it's a, it's a scientific process that takes takes a while because you want to make sure you're getting it right. You don't want to give patients something that will turn out to have any adverse effects or at least minimize, you don't want, you don't want those effects to be um, to the point where it's not benefiting the patient at all. So clinical trials are in stages and they take a while, but there's a reason for that. Eventually when they pass through those you know, different processes and it's certified that this is a good therapeutic that can actually benefit patients, I believe that um, then it will be available for, for consideration. Right. Yeah, somebody at uh, at work at the TV station where, where I do my full-time job was asking me the other day, well, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? And I said, well, mm -hmm. if they, you know, if they come up with a, this is how I described it to him, which is um, uh, way more of a layperson's description. But I said, look, they, they put out a drug. He was asking me about COVID. They put out a drug and said, guess what? It cures COVID, but it makes your leg fall off. Then, um, then you haven't really helped the patient. So that's why you've got to go through all these trials exactly, uh, because you can't have some uh, unintended consequence of, of whatever it is that you're trying to cure. But I got to tell you that the drugs that are out there right now are very few and far between. And mm. just about all of them that I've taken, and I, I think of prednisone is, is you know, the side effects from prednisone are so bad. I just soon suffer from the, the sarcoidosis, mm. <laughs> you know, Except, like, you know, in my case, it's on my spinal cord. So if I don't keep it controlled and it progresses on my spinal cord, then I lose mobility, right? I mean, or worse. Uh, so because it stops, it blocks signals from my brain to the lower, you know, to the rest of my body. So I've got to keep it under control. So, you know, for me, it's, if the doctor says you got to take prednisone, then you got to take prednisone. And that was, that was awful. Um, but it would be so nice to have something that was that that worked right <laughs> didn't it have all these terrible side effects exactly exactly yeah and that's that's something that i you know that i pray that will happen really really quickly um but one thing i can say is having just gone to these sarcoid meetings um sarcoidosis meetings and just interacted with the the few researchers who are doing the work um I can see a level of dedication that is just, it's unparalleled, like it's out of this world. So I'll give you an instance, like I work with uh, Dr. Wanda Drake at Vanderbilt and she does this thing where sometimes we, we've done the work, we, you know, we're talking about the results and she's just like, I don't think, let's just pray about this. Let's take a minute to pray about this and just, you know, ask God to just lead us and show us what to do. And that's the level of dedication that you have with the re people who are really looking at this disease is that they give everything that they have. And um, I have to tell you, prior to this time, I thought I'd end up in cancer research because that's really what I wanted to do, you know, after school. 
um, because I, you know, I lost a sibling to leukemia and I felt like this was my calling to go into looking at leukemia. Um, but when I tried it, I felt like it was just too close to home really for me. I just, it was a little bit, I just couldn't do it, you know, at, at that time because it was just too soon. And I felt like I was just really overwhelmed with emotions, you know, doing the work. But then when I found out about sarcoidosis and haven't worked in this field for this amount of time, it, I don't feel like my calling is cancer research anymore. I feel like this is a field that actually needs attention. It's still considered a rare disease and not a lot of people working on this disease. And I actually talk to people, I talk to people who are still getting their uh, training right now. I really encourage them to look into this, you know, rare diseases as well, because I feel like this is an area that really, really needs attention right now. There are a lot of people looking into cancer all over the world. Um, but even when I talk to friends and I say sarcoidosis, everyone is looking at me like, what does that even mean? So there are people who don't even know about this. And so um, I'm just really grateful for this platform. And I really hope that we, you know, this is not just for sarcoid patients, um, but I hope that this actually speaks to people who are looking to go into research to consider coming into this field because there's so much potential for growth in terms of your career. But even more importantly, there is, you're going to be making a difference. You're going to be making a difference in the lives of people who will eventually um, get to be beneficiaries of this great science that you're putting out. So, yeah. So this is my little call for uh, more soccer researchers because we actually do need them in the field. What, what would work? I mean, you're not out of medical school that long. So what would what would work if you were the foundation for sarcoidosis research right. and you were trying to attract more researchers into the field? Is it one-on-one -on -one meetings with people in the last year of medical school? Or, I mean, how do you, and, and we need researchers and we need doctors who right. understand, you know, and, you know, medical, you know, patient facing medical professionals. How do we get more people interested in sarcoidosis and helping? So I would say number one would be just awareness of the disease. So like I told you, right out of school, I had no idea what this was. And I went to, you know, I got my PhD. I'm a microbiologist, so I didn't have any idea what sarcoidosis was. And if I had that exposure, if I had someone, you know, who actually said, hey, have you heard about sarcoidosis? You know, this is a disease. Here are the numbers, things like that. I would at least be sensitized to know that that is out there. So I think number one is, of course, awareness for the disease. And I see groups actually doing what they can actually, usually it's like the patients who are actually doing their awareness. So I really hope that there would be more foundations that would look into just spreading that awareness. And of course, the second thing would be opportunity. So um, people are looking to make a career out of their work. And, um, where there's funding, you, you know, that the, the people who have the money actually attract more, um, more researchers. And, and so if there was funding, more funding for this disease where um, people were guaranteed that, you know, there's this track for career development where you, you study a rare disease, you have this money allocated for studying sarcoidosis, there's a, there's a track where you can be successful. Um, I think that that would really attract a lot of people. And so I think for me, it's just the awareness and of course, um, just having that mechanism where people know that when they come into this field, they can go ahead and the, uh, the, the grants are available for them. And when those grants are given, you know, and you do well and you, you find something novel that you're able to progress in your career as well. 
So I think these are the two things that I would say um, need to be done, really. Yeah. Do you, do you sense that that's happening or do you sense that that's uh, something that really needs to have a fire lit underneath it? Oh, yeah, that's happening. We're having this conversation. We're doing this podcast where people are going to hear about this. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely you're doing a whole lot just to make that happen. Um, Foundation of, Soc- uh, Foundation of um, Socrates' Research, actually, they've done a whole lot because what they've done is they've put, put money aside for researchers, PhDs and MDs to come into the field and be trained which is really what is needed because you need money to run research. It's, it's very expensive actually to do this, this kind of work. Um, and so they've provided that. And so I think that that is excellent. But most of their funding, I believe, comes from donations. Um, I don't know that they have any government uh, input with the kind, of, the kind of funding that they do. So I would like to see the NIH um, put out more opportunities for people who are studying rare diseases and say, hey, you know, with rare diseases, we know that it's not a lot of people who are going through this, but we want to provide, you know, these funds for for the disease. And I I really hope that that happens because that would really um, move the field forward. You need, we really need money to run research. That's just the way it is. We have a, uh, a new medical school here in Roanoke, Virginia, which is associated with Virginia Tech. Okay. And the uh, Carillion uh, School of Medicine, which is our local um, hospital clinic here. And I was listening to a talk from, uh, from one of the folks over there who talked about how expensive the mice are. And he said, you know, I, I, I'm, and I'm doing this from memory. I thought he said, we have mice down the hall that cost $100,000. And maybe that's, maybe I'm remembering, maybe it was 10000 I don't know. Either one is an astronomical figure, but the point is, is when you're doing this research on a mouse, mm-hmm. you don't just grab any old white mouse, right? You have to have a mouse that is uh, statistically neutral when you start and doesn't already have. Can you explain that? <laughs> well, this conversation, I, tr- I definitely don't have this conversation with people on the plane because I realized <laughs> really quickly that there are people who are animal rights activists and they don't believe in um, the use of animals for research, you know, studies. And so I, I tend to, to be careful when I talk about the use of animals, but I guess since we're talking about sarcoid, I would say that um, it's expensive. Yes, it's expensive, especially when you start looking at genetically modified like mice. So you're looking at the, you know, mouse models where they have specifically taken out the gene or they've specifically done something um, that especially is expensive. And then you have to go, you know, you, you have to repeat these experiments multiple times. It's not just looking at the, the mouse models, it's what you do with that data after you've gotten the data. So are you going to do microbiome studies? Are you going to do, what are you going to do with that information? So um, all these downstream uh, processes actually do cost a lot of money. And uh, yeah, mice, mice are expensive. It's not just the regular ones that you see in your house. It's, these are mice that have been bred specifically for that purpose. And some of them are genetically modified to ensure that you're specifically looking at what you really want to look at. And so, yeah, that's really expensive. And so uh, just having that funding, you know, as a researcher, that's one of the things that I think that's one of my biggest fears in research is the funding. Um, because you could start out as a, a as a researcher, you have a promising program, um, but 
it solely depends on funding. So every every wow. year I see my PI writing these grants to the NIH, trying to get funding. And it's like the 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 livelihood of everyone in the lab depends on you as the as the principal investigator, whether you get these grants or not. It's a lot of pressure. And we know that it's highly competitive. These grants, there's a lot of researchers who are putting in these applications. You're just hoping that your application is considered for even discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, if you don't get those, those grants, I've seen people who their research program just folds because they have no money for funding. They can't pay the PI, they, they can't pay the, in, the technicians, they can't pay any postdocs, they can't pay any anyone in the lab. And so that's my fear as a researcher. It's not even the fact that we're not going to find anything because I know we are going to find stuff. Like the research we do is we do our best, we do, and we find good results. But my fear as a researcher is just not having the funds to move to the next level is writing a grant and getting rejected, things like that. It's having people in my lab one day and then tomorrow I have to tell them that, oh, we don't have funding anymore. You know, you have to look for something else to do. So right. I, I think that's the fear that most people have. And if you ask me as, as a researcher hoping to start my own independent um, lab and um, progress in the field, that's the one thing I think of all the time is just the uncertainty. I'm just like, ah, so I'm going to have all these people depending on me in a lab setting. And to ensure that I get funding, it means that I have to apply for multiple grants every year and hope that I get that funding, you know? Right. And of course your progression in the, in the university also depends on your funding. So who, who, the person who has more funding actually is given more roles, is, is promoted, you know, it's, it, it's there's so many things tied to that. And so it's not, you're not just thinking about the science of it, you're actually also thinking about the economics of it. And so that puts a lot of pressure on researchers. And, and so that's one of the things that I, you know, I, I hope in the future will change where there's, I don't, I don't know how this will happen, but guaranteed funding for things like this, because people actually need this. You know, this is not just looking at, hey, are the flowers growing? And this is no shade to people in agriculture. Right. Um, but it is, this is really important stuff. And I really hope that there's, you know, more, there, there are more funding mechanisms that are put in place in the future. Well, I certainly hope so too, speaking uh, on behalf of the sarcoidosis community. Uh, as a, as a SARC fighter myself, a sarcoidosis warrior, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just want to say thank you to you for, for all of your research. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, all of us out here uh, in this space are trying to raise money one way or another for the foundation so that they can keep doing what they do. Uh, but, you know, do you, and we all, like, for instance, my wife is running a 5K to raise money for sarcoidosis with her friends this week. Um, as part of the kick in to stop sarcoidosis campaign that keeps that keeps their operating funding going for for the foundation but you talk about the NIH the NIH is where the real money is that's where you get the millions and millions of dollars and that's what it takes so that all you super smart people at Vanderbilt can all gather together and look at um, you know microbes or, or hormones or, or you know whatever it is that you're tracing uh, and that's so if, you, if you're with the NIH and you happen to stumble on this podcast and you're driving to work uh, or driving home from work or on your Peloton or whatever, when you're listening to a podcast, please, please, please fund sarcoidosis. Yes. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we want. 
um, fund rare diseases. I know, you know, we know that it's not a lot of people. Sometimes people feel like, oh, it's not a lot of people. You know, it's less than 300,000. Um, no, but these are actual, these are our fathers, our mothers, these are our kids. You know what I mean? Like, these are our loved ones. It doesn't really matter. One, per, one patient is one too many. So um, it's important. It's important that we, we look into these things. And for everyone out there who is in their own way, trying to you know create awareness like you know i would say they are the real mvps and the the, the soccer patients every time we write a paper every time we we write a grant you know they're the first people that we we thank because they're the ones who provide our, our samples they give us these samples you know whatever samples we say we need our soccer patients are they're very um they give us these samples they, they don't ask questions and so we thank them because without them this research would be meaningless so um, yeah, we just really hope that uh, whoever is in charge of, you know, allocating funds to rare diseases really looks into not just the numbers, but the people behind the numbers. These are actual lives. And, and we just hope that they, they're able to consider that. Yeah, I'll hope so too. And uh, if you want to hear the actual lives, just listen to some of the patients who have, have come on the podcast and, and told their stories. So, um, well, uh, uh, Ozzy, I, I do appreciate your time. I appreciate your work. We wish you all the success. I'd like to have you come back on uh, if and when your uh, paper is published and the peer review is done. And then we can talk about what's next with your research and, and finding a cure. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Honor. Thank you. So I'll continue to follow Ozzy's progress with her research, and we look forward to the day when that research results in new treatments for sarcoidosis. And after her peer review and it gets published, we can talk more about uh, different uh, aspects of her research and what happens next. So we'll, that is a story that we'll continue to track here on the Sark Fighter podcast. By the way, uh, once again, please sign up for the November 14th Summit. I look forward to seeing you there. It is $40, but uh, they'll take care of you if you can't afford it. All the information for the summit will be in the show notes, along with links to see some of the speakers and the discussion. And I hope that if you're listening, you're finding the podcast helpful in some way. Please send me an email, carlinagency at gmail.com. It's in the show notes. Follow the Sark Fighter podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. Thanks again to Ozzy for joining me here today on episode 21. And until next time, keep fighting.